Hi there, welcome back to the Video Essay Podcast, a show featuring conversations with leading practitioners of videographic criticism. I'm Emily Subin Co, the associate producer of the Video Essay Podcast, and I'm super excited about today's episode. Will and I spoke with Professor Barbara Zecchi, prolific video essayist and director of the film studies program at UMass Amherst. I just graduated from UMass Amherst and have had the privilege of working closely with Barbara in a variety of contexts, so it was wonderful to sit down with her and Will to discuss her origin story, her digital humanities work, including the Hinocine Project, and how it relates to her videographic work. And of course, the International Conference on Videographic Criticism happening at UMass Amherst in September. Before we get right into the conversation, please consider subscribing to Notes on Videographic Criticism, a newsletter that Will puts out every few weeks that highlights essays, video essays, short interviews, events related to videographic criticism, and more. Go to thevideoessay.com to start receiving this treat in your inbox. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon. All right. Let's get into it. I'm very pleased to be joined by one of my favorite people who I've met since joining the video essay world and, and doing all of this, uh, Barbara Zecchi, who is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, is known to probably everyone who's listening right now, so we don't need a super long introduction, prolific scholar, video essayist, teacher, organizer, we'll get to this later, of a very exciting video essay conference later this year. The list goes on and on, and also a student of Barbara's, who everyone here knows, Emily Subinko, the show's uh, producer. Uh, how are you both doing today? Barbara, welcome to the Video Essay Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for this incredible introduction. Oh, I'm, I'm really speechless now. So what can I say? Thank you very much for having me. And I really share the same feeling about you and Emily. You guys are among my favorite people. And uh, I feel like the future of our field is in such amazing hands. You guys are both so talented. Thank you, and it's an honor to talk to you today. We'll start off with the basic question that I know you know, and I I already know kind of the answer to this question a little bit. But for for the you know for everyone who's listening in, what is your uh, we call it the origin story? When were you first introduced to video essays, and what inspired you to begin creating them yourself? Tell us tell us about you. <laughs> So the origin story, well, I could respond to your question in just three words. <laughs> Middlebury Video Camp. <laughs> so in the summer of 2019, I attended the workshop on videographic criticism at Middlebury College. Um, this is where we met, uh, Will and I. And uh, uh, that total immersion in the theory and practice of the field was fundamental to me. It provided me with the theoretical tools I needed to understand really what I was doing and what I wanted to do. 
uh, I had the technical skills more or less, but I, I was lacking the foundation. And I must say that my technical skills improved dramatically uh, during those two weeks. And that summer marked a before and after in my work as a video essayist, because I was making uh, quote unquote video essays before, I was always trying to use images to discuss images in my classes and for presentation at conferences, but they were not standalone pieces. They were simply meant to complement my written works. So they were not video essays. And so when you were in the lead up to video camp or just kind of in your day in day out life as a, as a scholar and you know, whatever, uh, who, who were those video essayists that you were watching or video essays, you know, how familiar were you with kind of this online community of practice that you have since joined and become like a, a key force in? Before attending Middlebury College, I had other influences. You know, my major influence was Maria Ruido, who does not belong to this community. Um, she, she was introduced to me by one of my graduate students who wrote a dissertation on her. Uh, she's a Galician visual artist who teaches at the University of Barcelona and makes video uh, visual essays, actually, she calls them, on topics such as, I don't know, the construction on historical memory, labor under capitalism, on gender issues in particular. I was influenced by her visual essay entitled The Human Voice, uh, which is a video performance about the violence contained in language. And this piece resonates powerfully in my work on the voiceover, and in particular in my recent video essay entitled What is an Accented Voiceover? Although I do the opposite of Maria Ruido, my, maybe we can talk about this later if you like. And I'm interested in Maria, Ruido, Maria Ruido's use of the body and of the voice as a production tool, because she articulates, articulates a sort of a... a an epistemological strategy, a sort of an embodied way of knowing. And I would say that the use of the body like that is something that Collega Liberlene and Johannes Binotto uh, do too. And then another early influence, uh, this was again before going to, to Middlebury, was Cecilia Barriga's Encuentro Entre Dos Reinas, Meeting of the Two Queens. Oh, yes, we, great video. Yeah. yeah. I think we watched it uh, at Middlebury and, uh, and, and I said, oh, yes, I know this one. It's a sort of a, sort of a cult video essay uh, in which she recontextualizes footage from Marlene Dietrich and Greta Garbo's movies uh, and she makes them encounter and depicts her their romance and she gives visibility to a lesbian subculture that were really, that is it hidden, still is hidden um, by and within the dominal, dominant film discourse. And of course, uh, my, my favorite was Catherine Grant. Before getting to know her personally at Middlebury College, I was fascinated by, by her work on Lucrezia Martel because I'm a scholar of Iberian and Latin American cinema. And in particular, I remember watching The Haunting of the Headless, Headless Woman at a conference uh, and I thought, oh my God, I want to do this. And uh, I think that it's uh, one of the best examples of what you can really do with a video essay that you cannot do in a written text. And, um, and I think 
probably this is the video asset that made me click and, and, and think I want to go there. But you know, I knew already uh, Chris Keithley and Jason Mittal's uh, book, uh, the first edition, because I was using it in my classes. And of course, Chris Keithley passed the salt. Thank you for that. And I think you touch on something that is so important um, when we talk about videographic criticism, and that is that we, as video essayists, often bring into the fold the work of other artists and scholars who may not be operating within the video essay tradition. And we talk about video essay as this kind of umbrella term. Um, I know that's something that's often negotiated in the Sight and Sound poll every year where there's a, a whole mix of works. And actually even just recently published on the podcast feed is a conversation between Chloe and Ioannis and Kevin B. Lee, where they talk about curating video essays for the Film Explorer website. And Kevin talks about reaching out to the artist who, whose work is featured. Um, and I, I believe the artist said, oh, I hadn't, I think Kevin recounts in the podcast asking, you know, do you think of this as video essay? And the artist's kind of like, hmm, I never considered it. Um, and so it's important to a, a, acknowledge that. And I think that's one of the things that's so great about um, this kind of work. And also, I think is a perfect segue to asking you about could you talk in a little bit more detail the kinds of, of work that you were doing pre-video pre essay, but that has in it like traces of what we might see in your, your more recent video essay work? Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you for this question. Yeah, my background is in gender studies and in Iberian cinemas. Before Middlebury, I was making my first uh, quote-unquote video essays um, with the goal of you know, my goal was to denounce the representation of women's stereotypes in mainstream, mainstream cinema, both in Hollywood and in commercial cinema, in male author cinema in Spain. In particular, I, I was working on the representation of violence against women and gender diverse people in Spanish comedies or, or on the trivialization of gender-based violence in Pedro Almodovar's films. And I, and I was making, you know, uh, I cannot call them video essay, but, you know, visual products, uh, Back then, I made these works with in mind what Virginia Woolf called the obstinate resistance reading, that is, deciphering texts that did not yield their meaning easily. Virginia Woolf was quite explicit about it. In, in an essay, she wrote that resistant reading implied stopping, going back, rereading, trying out this way, try out the other way, more or less. Right? I'm just quoting uh, without, you know, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but more or less this is the quote. And, uh, um, but if we apply this uh, strategy to audiovisual cultural product, doesn't she sound like Laura Malvi's concept of delay? Um, it seems like Virginia Woolf was already giving instruction on how to make a, a video essay, and I was already following those instructions. I knew that I had to do a granular deciphering of uh, the representation of violence in mainstream cinema because sometimes it is hidden, you know. And then from that, I was also, you know, uh, fascinated by, by the work that um, Anita Sarkeesian. Uh, feminist frequency, you know, uh, she was doing. This was before her videos about video games. And uh, and then, you know, uh, my, my focus shifted uh, to women's work um, and gynocine, the invisibility of women filmmakers in the film industry. 
um, and all these under-examined initiatives um, in film practice um, that really disrupt canonical modes of depicting gender and, and that pose alternatives uh, to the hegemonic representation. So both my books, Desenfocadas, Out of Focus, and La Pantalla Sexuada, uh, The Gender Screen, dedicate a lot of space to Spanish and Catalan women in early cinema, and the significant trace that their lost films had left through documents, reviewing journals, uh, in newspapers. But I felt the urge to give these women filmmakers visibility beyond the written page. So I started making um, uh, a short documentary, for instance, uh, a short documentary interview and a sort of a video essay on Margarita Alexandre, uh, who was in, in 2007, she was the, the only Spanish woman pioneer still alive. And she recently passed at the age of 94. And then I've been involved as a executive producer of a recent documentary on Elena Jordi, who is an Arab pioneer. And now I've been contacting uh, for an Arab film on two other early filmmakers, Elena Cortesina and Rosario Pibrujas. And, um, and then I made, a, you know, I think I mentioned to you that film that I made, um, and you are, were asking if it was available somewhere. And, and that was um, a work that I made in in 2015. Could you just share the 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 title of the of the film and just tell us a little bit about it? And is is it, if, and if it is available, where it is? The film you're referring to is a work I made in 2015, and it's a 90 minute uh, film or ethnographic fake documentary called "Women Film Pioneers: The Off Screen," and I refer to the off screen as a concept. Um, that I really like in feminist film theory. Um, this It's a concept uh, studied by Teresa De Lauretis, uh, an Italian feminist. It's the space in the gaps, the interstices of hegemonic speech uh, where resides a feminist alternative discourse. And uh, so what I do in this, in this film is a reenactment of women filmmakers uh, whose work has been lost. Something similar to what I, I've, I've done with, more, with my recent video essay on Elena Cortesina. It was uh, premiered in Sorrento in Italy and then I presented at many conferences. And, uh, and in a way, the origin of my reflection upon the voiceover, because it's multilingual work with voices speaking in French, Italian, Spanish, Catalan, English, and uh, it doesn't have subtitles. And this is, uh, I thought it was its singularity, but maybe it is also its flaw because I can understand it, but not everybody can. <laughs> and it was not meant for people to understand everything, but it gets uh, my audience kind of frustrated, I think. Um, so, Yes, as I said, um, it can be considered as the first draft of what I'm, I'm trying to attend with the, the video essay about Elena Cortesina, um, the filling the void. And it's about my personal relation with lost films and the use of the body uh, as a production tool, as I said before, for Maria Ruido visual essays. 
Yes, it's available. It's actually in Vimeo, hidden, um, <laughs> hidden because it's very old. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that now I feel like I want to revisit it, you know, and make a different version. So please don't look for it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll respect your wishes there. But it's very exciting to hear you talk about that because one can really see kind of your the origins of so much of what you're doing now right in in many different ways so that's very exciting but i want to kick it over to emily now to ask you our next question yeah <laughs> i love hearing about your scholarly work and you talk about the ways in which you give visibility to women filmmakers and you mentioned the Gynocene project which i've had the pleasure of actually working as a research assistant with you um, so if you could talk a little bit more about this project the work that you've been doing and how it connects to your videographic work Oh, thank you, Emily, for this question. Yes, I love to talk about uh, the Gynocene project. And here I cannot say there is a before and after with Middlebury College, but I can say there is a before and after with Emily Cole. <laughs> because <laughs> really, when Emily Cole came on board, things changed dramatically, as always. So um, I launched it in, in 2011, so a long time before Emily. It was with the Seed Grant University of Massachusetts, and this is an open access online multilingual database that offers resources related to the production of women filmmakers, uh, and among which video essays. I created um, this uh, neologism, uh, Gaino Cine, because, you know, back then I, I felt this need to respond uh, to the crisis of naming in feminist film criticism that was denounced by Ruby Rich in a, in a seminal piece. And I wanted to overcome these limitations of the term feminine cinema, feminist cinema, cinema by women, women's cinema. And so I, I decided to, to name this corpus in a different way, gynocine. And uh, um, so, in a way, I'm trying to avoid all the connotations that are implicit in feminist, feminine, or by women, or uh, women's cinema, right? And the project started with a very limited scope. Uh, I wanted to give visibility to only to the long-lost works of women film pioneers, again, in early cinema. And, uh, and originally only um, in the Spanish state. And then very quickly, I realized that... Uh, I, I needed to expand it uh, chronologically. So it became all the generations of women filmmakers in Spain. And then geographically, from Iberian cinemas to Latin American cinemas. And then it really expanded globally with new regions, um, with new regions coordinators. So uh, Stefania Benini did a huge work for the Italian section. And then Emily uh, came on board and helped me as research assistant, but also as a coordinator of the Asian Gynocene with amazing contributions for which she received a Roif Award last year. And uh, yeah, uh, so there are women filmmakers, bios, filmographies, interviews, film reviews, uh, and some video essays. So my goal is, is to keep expanding it. Um, and, and to create also, I was thinking, uh, yes, that we have to, to dedicate a space for the video essays we receive that now are, are just there. They don't have a special space, but maybe uh, I can create a separate Vimeo showcase. 
Yeah, I think one of the awesome things that Gynocene does is it brings scholars together and there's such an awesome community of scholars contributing work, um, writing for the website, and even students too. Um, so I know at UMass as a student, I'm, I was so grateful to have so many opportunities to engage in videographic criticism, um, did my thesis and my thesis was a video essay, for example. Um, and I know some graduate students who are also working on video essays, submitting to in transition. So could you talk a little bit more about that and um, talk a little bit more about the future for videographic criticism at UMass? Well, now that you're, you are leaving UMass, I don't know if there's going to be a future. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh, no. <laughs> no, we feel all so sad that Emily's leaving. Um, but yes, full disclosure, I'm totally biased. I love UMass. I'm so excited about what we are doing at UMass in videographic criticism. I'm really lucky. Um, I'm working with my wonderful colleague, Daniel Pope, with whom I, I really share this passion. And Daniel began teaching classes in film scholarship in digital media uh, back in 2013, I think, um, at least 10 years ago. And uh, he was teaching the first film classes at university, working in podcast and in video essay forms. And one of them is now a core course for our major. And it was approved as a junior year writing genetic requirement. So we have more and more film majors and students in general that will explore videographic criticism. And then, um, yes, uh, many students doing video essays. Um, there are uh, students in, in Daniel's class, but also in other classes in, in the Department of Communication, for instance, I saw they're doing videographic criticism, both uh, faculty and students, uh, and in my classes, of course, um, uh, several of my graduate advisees are making stunning videographic essays. Uh, one of them, Thalia Science, produced a video essay as her master thesis on the Catalan creative documentary, and it was published in, in, in Transition. Then we have Emily Co beautiful video essay on dreams, uh, as, as you just said, uh, which uh, was your honor thesis. And also uh, the Rolf Awards. Uh, these are um, competitive annual prizes awarded to students whose work in filmmaking demonstrate exceptional creativity. And for the first time, uh, we included a video essay in 2018. Um, it was nominated for, for this award. And now the trend is to have several nominations for this category. And this year, it was the first time that the video essay won the Best in Competition Award. And again, it was Emily's <laughs> beautiful video essay on, on dreams. So yes, so we are very active. And I was forgetting next semester, we are going to have Chloe Galibert-Lenay teaching for our Visiting Filmmaker series, a class on desktop filmmaking. And also Johannes Binotto is gonna be with us teaching two workshops. Uh, and of course, the conference um, on the theory and practice of the video essay in September. So we and we do have many other plans for the future. But now I'm going to have a sabbatical. So more soon. <laughs> Let's now transition to talking about something that you've alluded to. Um, and that is your work on the what do you refer to as the accented video essay? There's you've you've been very prolific in this area, so we'll have to go piece by piece and no one question can kind of capture it all. But I'd be curious if you could share an overview of your work on this topic. And as you have written, 
uh, I, I pulled this quote, the need to further discuss the, quote, destabilization of hegemonic authoritative discourses, parentheses, male standard English voiceover. Please discuss. <laughs> and everything that we talk about here, I will just say, will be at thevideoessay.com, links to Barbara's work on these various topics. I think I should have said that earlier. So um, yes, please go ahead, Barbara. Yes, thank you, Will. The accent, yes, such an important topic for me. Um, I really appreciate this question because, you know, the accent is... Uh, such a part of my identity as an Italian who lived years in Spain. So I have an accent when I'm in Spain and when I was in Spain and now in the US. So, and now I even have an accent when I go back uh, to Italy. Um, they ask me, where are you from? So I don't want to pretend that I am an expert in the accented voiceover. I just have an accent. Um, if I may add, I have an accent like everybody else. You have an accent too. Uh, but as I said at the workshop on the accented voiceover, by paraphrasing George Orwell's Animal Farm, um, all people have an accent, but some accents are more accented than, than others, right? So um, my interest in, in the voiceover, in the accented voiceover, is really out of necessity. And this sounds quite tautological, but... If I want to avoid the accent in my voiceover, I can either avoid the voiceover altogether by, by following Ian Garwood's advice, or I can use someone else doing the voiceover for me. And this is what I used to do before going to Middlebury College. I had a couple of graduate students that had excellent vocal skills doing the voiceover for my video essays, one for Spanish and one for English. So. It was not a concern back then. It was just a nuisance, basically. And then at Middlebury College, everything changed. And I started to see the political implications of choosing to do my voiceover, despite of, or rather because of my accent. So in the video camp, we engaged uh, in discussing some practical and ideological issues surrounding the use of the voiceover. Remember? I, I remember that I was doing, we had to do the voiceover exercise. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I cannot do it. I cannot use my voice. And then uh, this was just, you know, the beginning. And then these discussions uh, continued um, with a roundtable at the SCMS conference in 2021. Um, it was organized and chaired by Carrie Haggerty, revoicing the authoritative voiceover and it was six of, six, six of us, uh, six video campers um, that explored the use of first person voiceover um, that falls outside the norm uh, of what is considered um, appropriate academically. Um, it, it could be tone, uh, register, or uh, voices that suffer from credibility bias, because they are either female or foreign accented or both like mine. So um, for that round table, I created a video essay, What is an Accented Voiceover? In which I put into dialogue Kogonada's uh, seminal video essay, What is Neorealism? with his more recent Nothing at Stake on uh, Quaron's Roma. And my goal is to reflect upon authority and power relations in language about the voiceover with an accent, but also 
about the voice of the other in cinema and about Hollywood's, Hollywood versus accented cinema. So if you think Kogonadas is doing that, um, he does not talk about the voiceover per se, but talks about the language of film. Vittorio De Sica has an accent, uh, while David Selznick speaks standard Hollywood film language. And De Sica's film language centers its interest on uh, apparently less relevant characters. He focuses the attention on characters that Selznick considered irrelevant and disposable. So like the character of Cleo, or Cleo in Quaron's Roma. So this is the connection that I make between Kogonada's two video essays. And then moreover, while Kogonada's video essay on neorealism uses a male voiceover, his more recent video essay on Roma is narrated in English by a female voice that talks about a seemingly meaningless character in her words, a character that would have interested Vittorio De Sica, but not Selznick. So I don't know if I'm explaining myself, but these are the connections. You see, there are many layers that I want to put in that video essay. And I enact to do so a series of displacements. So Kogonada's standard English is displaced by my voice as um, Maria Ruido did in the human voice, the video, this uh, visual uh, video I told you about at the beginning of the interview, right? But my voice silences Kogonada voice. So it's my, my female and accented voice that covers Kogonada's male standard English voice. And then I do another displacement. My English narration is displaced by the narration of my voice in Italian, followed by a female Spanish voice from Mexico, and then by indigenous languages from Mexico, uh, Mixteco, and Eastern Chatino. So all these voices repeat in different languages the same sentence of the English narrator of Kogonada's uh, second um, uh, video essay. Um, her steps matter, her voice too. And so you hear the same sentence in English, in Spanish, in indigenous language, and another indigenous language. So in my, in my video, so while Maria Ruido's voice uh, in her video essay becomes more and more muffled, she covers her mouth with scotch tape and she ends up not being able to articulate a word. And at the end of her video, uh, we only hear the male voice. But what I do is quite the opposite. In my video essay, my voice takes over and then other voices with less authority uh, so what I do is I empower the voice of the subaltern. I don't know if I <laughs> explain myself and if uh, my video essay shows this, but this was my intention. So in, in brief, what I wanted to do is ask myself or ask my um, viewers, which voice has more authority to talk about an indigenous woman, Kogonada's male voice or the voice of a indigenous woman. And of course, the answer is the latter, right? The, the voice of the indigenous woman. Uh, so I, I don't think the English voiceover is a concession 
but it's, it's not a submission towards the hegemonic language, but quite the contrary. One of the things that I so appreciate about what is an accented video essay and then your, your next piece, empowering the accent and accented video essay, which you made for the interrogating the modes of videographic criticism conference, um, is you, and, and you alluded to this in one of the earlier questions, this kind of the sense of embodiment and the sense of the personal, is that we really feel you, your, your, your personal connection to this, you know, in the empowering the accent video, you literally appear. There's an image of you, and you reenact. You, you do a line going down you, and you say "ow." And there's a picture of Ian Garwood in your video. Um, so not only is your voice present, but your actual, your actual body, and you're using that to reflect on so many different things, right? You aren't. There's no. Uh, it, it's highly. Uh, subjective in in a sense right like you're not uh, there's a degree of vulnerability that you're you're allowing yourself in this work and i was wondering if you could talk about that and how it how, how it feeds into these kind of video essays that are very grounded in real things but then also take on kind of a meta personal approach well i you know i it's interesting that you talk about vulnerability because I should feel vulnerable, probably, um, but I don't. I, I actually feel so empowered uh, by being able to do this. I, I think that the trend is this. Uh, my videos are becoming more and more personal, and, uh, um, and I'm not afraid of it. I, I really don't care. <laughs> and now... I feel very comfortable with the audience. I know that, you know, I prefer not to present them unless I really have to in other setting. I can only imagine what would happen to show my video essay about Elena Cortesina to um, the, this conf this, uh, the annual conference uh, at Girona, where, where I go. It's uh, um, a conference about... Um, about early cinema and it's all film historians and they already uh, are quite uncomfortable with what I, I used to do before. It was just, you know, um, my feminist interpretations. Uh, and imagine if I go there with a video essay in which you see myself divided into. So <laughs> <it would> be... <laughs> I'm just laughing because I know I will do it. <laughs> I like to provoke also, you know, and I think there is this. But something happened at Middlebury College, really. Um, I didn't have fun before. It was just work. And now it's fun. And also something, it's so personal. And, and it was not just me because, you see, we were all reflecting about um, how personal we were being with the voiceover and... Uh, uh, even people that do not have to struggle with a foreign accent, we're doing different things, right? Uh, and they we're all putting ourselves into the video essay. Um, now, I don't know why I cannot really theorize it. I don't, I don't have an answer, but but definitely this is happening. So yes, <laughs> so but but I, you know what I can tell you is that I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna continue doing it um, and. Uh, and I have fun doing it. It's pleasure. That is so important to the theoretical and the, 
for lack of a better term, like the weighty subject that you're dealing with. Like it actually, it's it's interesting how this kind of fun and personality that you bring to it that maybe quote unquote like serious academics may be like turned off by. Like I think in the video essay format, that's what actually makes it that much more impactful and resonant and gripping and that it, it lingers with you because I, and remember those conversations that we had at video camp where you were talking about the voiceover exercise. And so I know your personal connection to this work, but I think that that comes through, even if for someone who had never even known you watching this video, it, it's it's very self-evident and, and, and very impactful, I think. Yeah, that, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> to create an impact <laughs> on me, on me, definitely. You know, <laughs> And then I, I don't know on, on those who are watching me, if it's possible or not, but yeah, but definitely on me. <laughs> yeah, and I think that gets at why we even do videographic criticism in the first place and what are the unique capabilities of the form? Because I think hearing someone's voice is very different than reading something that might be written in first person. Obviously, you can connect with that emotionally, but there's something really compelling about hearing their voice. And with an accented video essay, you can kind of hear where they might come from and kind of there's more to a voice than just read listening to a voice than just reading it yes um, absolutely you say very well emily i agree with you yeah definitely yeah and so as we're talking about how you put yourself in these video essays i think we can move on to talking about uh filling feeling the archival void the case of elena cortesina uh, Flor de España. I don't know if I yes, pronounced that right. Um, well, uh, yes, great. Um, if you could talk a little bit more about how you came up with this idea and just walk us through the origin story. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Yes, I created this video essay uh, for the panel Digital Digging, Videographic Approaches to Archival Footage, chaired by Evelyn Kratzer uh, at the SCMS conference this year. And as I was telling you before, I worked extensively on women film pioneers, and I dedicated many years of my life to archival research on women directors in early cinema, in particular, um, but not exclusively in the Spanish state. Um, and I worked a lot on Elena Cortesina. So this video essay is about uh, the long lost melodrama Flor de España, directed by Elena Cortesina in 1921. This is the only film by this extraordinary woman who started as a dancer, then moved to acting, both in cinema and in theater. She even worked with Federico Garcia Lorca. She left Spain during the civil war after Lorca's assassination, and she went into exile to Argentina where she worked in theater, and then she even founded her own theater company. So why, why did I choose this film? Why Flor de España? Why is it relevant? You know, I, I get, you know, I get so passionate about this when I talk about this film, because, well, first of all, it's the first feature film directed by a woman in the Spanish state. Second, it's the only film by Elena Cortesina She's the director, the producer, the protagonist of the film. The story was written by a man, the script, uh, although we cannot really talk about script back then, but the story was written by a man, uh, a priest, Jose Maria Granada. 
the film is lost, but we have a lot of evidence um, that she was the sole director. I even found uh, a film synopsis. And very recently, just before uh, the COVID outbreak, they found the score. So we have a lot of, lot, a lot of traces. But since the beginning of the Francisco Franco regime, Helena Cortesina's authorship began to fade little by little. First, it was attributed by Elena Cortesina and Maria Jose Granada. And then the credit of the direction was given only to Ma Jose Maria Granada. And this expropriation happened uh, in the 1940s, but believe it or not, it persists still now in some publica publications and important publications. So it makes me so angry. And, and this is not the only manipulation of historical data by Francisco Franco's uh, film historians. Um, just, just sorry that I open a parenthesis, uh, but you know, I, I, I have to, to, to tell you this. For instance, they even changed the dates of the very first film in the history of Spanish cinema, because it was inconceivable for the Franco regime that the history of Spanish cinema could begin with a film from Barcelona about a bar fight. And this is the title of uh, the first film, History of Spanish Cinema, Fight in a Cafe, in a Bar, right? By Fruto Gelaberg. So what they did, they forged the date of another film of religious topic made two years later, they changed the date and pretended that this was the first film of Spanish cinema. So, you know, there is so much to denounce. Um, and Elena Cortesina is not the only case uh, and, or this first film by Fruto Gelabert. Uh, there are many others, many other expropriations. Um, and um, so I, I really wanted to, to do something about this. And this is why you know, I wrote uh, articles um, the first chapter of my first book is about this, but then I needed to do something else, you know, to continue. And, and this was the perfect occasion, you know, when Evelyn asked me to participate, I said, yes, again, Elena Cortesina. And, and it was the first time I think that I did a, something uh, using the desktop documentary approach. I did, the, I chose the, desk, the desktop documentary approach without thinking about it. It, it came natural to me. I wanted to show my personal involvement with this lost film. And the desktop documentary approach allowed me to show kind of the reconstruction process, the archeological work of putting together its pieces, even though some of these pieces are false pieces. So it's like, I think it's like the work of an archeologist when they uncovered the artifacts, they cleaned them, they labeled them, they classified them. I felt that the desktop approach was showing that. And I'm thinking, you know, when I, when I was doing this video, I was thinking uh, a memory of my childhood uh, when I went to Greece to, to see the Knossos Palace of Crete. Crete. And uh, um, it's where there are these frescoes of, um, people leaping over bulls. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's 
when you go there, it's, you see like a puzzle of many missing pieces, pieces that have been reconstructed. So what survives of the original frescoes amounts to uh, no more than a few square inches. All the rest uh, of the frescoes is more or less a reconstruction that was commissioned uh, in the first half of the 20th century. So the original pieces, if I well remember, are thicker. So you can tell the difference. What is original, very little, and then what is fake, and it's thinner, it's just painted. And, and this is the debate with archeological sites, right? Uh, whether should the site be reconstructed as we believe it was, or should the site be left as it is uh, for visitors with no clue uh, of the site um, to understand what it means. And uh, so this is more or less what I meant to do with this video essay, a reconstruction of the original from a few pieces that we have found. And I don't know if... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it works or not, but this is uh, was the idea. It absolutely works. I think that uh, analogy to the archaeological dig and site reconstruction is brilliant, and I, I think it makes complete sense. And I think one of the things that I appreciated about your desktop documentary approach, and there's a million different ways we could tackle it, is because there, it it also does a great job of showing your labor as it relates to this project, your gathering of materials over time, you know, and the desktop is a place where we put those things in folders, our JPEGs, our Word docs, our PDFs, so, you know, th those types of things. And I think we really feel the way that you've gathered and worked through material. As you say, we can trace this back to the first chapter of your first book. And I, I think that's what's really special. And I think, to your point, you've decided to reassemble this. You're, you're not trying to reshoot or recreate the film, but reassemble it to deliver in this specific moment via this specific format. And this is the approach that you're taking. Yes. So. And it's so personal. You know, uh, please don't laugh at me or you can laugh if you want. But those tears of joy that you see in my eyes um, are real. You know, when, <laughs> when I, I reconstructed this film, I felt completely emotional. So I thought I have to visualize this emotion. It's important to include it. And so uh, there is a lot about my personal feelings. Um, also because, um, as I said before, I really feel the, the anger and the pain of women's work being attributed to men. And so actually the initial idea uh, with this video essay was to denounce the expropriation. Uh, but, you know, this is something that I've already done in, uh, in my written pieces about Cortesina. So I thought, um, I've done enough of denouncing and deconstructing, so let's, me now, let's now construct something. And so I, the, the first, I think the, um, there is still a first part of the video that I did not didn't make it to the, my final cut of the video essay that's entitled... Um, the lies of the archives, and maybe I will, you know, I will, uh, I will expand it and, and make another video or a continuation of the first part of, of this video. 
But then I ended up just doing, uh, filling the void or rather feeling the void. And, and this again, you know, it's making fun at myself as a native speaker of Italian because it's really very hard for me to tell the difference between feeling and feeling. Uh, you know, an Italian speaker does not distinguish between E and E. It sound the same. It's very hard for me <laughs> to tell the difference and to pronounce it. I never know if I say, Uh, to my students, take a please take a sheet of paper or take a sheet of paper. <laughs> 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 so feeling and feeling the void is the same. I'm feeling and feeling the void. <laughs> well, I would never laugh at your tears, Barbara. And I, I think when you sent me this video essay some weeks ago or, or months, I, I don't recall, I, I wrote back to you and I said, I I felt like crying myself a little bit. And I, I meant that because it's incredibly moving, all of your work in this, but I think the last segment in particular where this work is brought back to life in a sense and, and, and reanimated is incredibly moving and, and powerful. I think it charts a way forward for videographic criticism in the sense that how do we think about these archival voids and what they mean for videographic criticism. And that just because the material that we might not be used to working with, like, you know, a 4K of whatever blockbuster, you know, film, you know, we don't, you don't need that to create something in this format because of it. Thank you. Yeah. The, the, the last part when, well, the beginning, there is a, a clip from uh, Cinema Paradiso. Uh, right, uh, and Cinema Paradiso is about uh, the destruction of a film patrimony made by censorship. Um, and we can talk about fire, uh, like in Cinema Paradiso, there is a fire, uh, but the fire was not the only culprit. And uh, in fact, the work of many of these filmmakers uh, And I know for sure that another film, uh, Ties by Elena Giordi, which is also lost, uh, might have been destroyed on purpose because uh, it included sexually explicit images. Uh, and so they, they had to make it disappear during the Franco regime. And I'm sure uh, it also happened the same with films by the Italian film pioneer Elvira Notari, that she was censored in Italy by fascism And her film was smuggled to the US uh, for Italian immigrants to watch, but it was also censored here during the production code. So I'm saying all this because I think at the end, when I, I put myself in place, in the place of the actor uh, that looks at uh, all the kisses of, uh, that the censors had cut, uh, but You know, it's in my video essay, it's not the kisses, it's uh, pieces of other films that I construct, the pieces of the puzzle, right? Um, I think it means uh, that these pieces of the puzzle are like, you know, love, are like kisses to me. <laughs> and, and then, of course, uh, Morricone music uh, does the trick because you always cry when you have Morricone soundtrack. So it was, it was easy. Uh, To have tears in my eyes but yeah yeah i love that imagery um and i i love that part when your face comes up as if you're watching the screen 
and finally experiencing what could have been the film. And I think your video, it has both elements of being poetic and explanatory. So could you talk a little bit more about how you balance those two tones? Thank you, Emily. You know, I did not think about it. I'm so glad that you find that there is a, a balance. I was just trying to avoid uh, duplicating what I have already written about this film. And therefore, I wanted to avoid the explanatory mode. Uh, but then, you know, I needed to explain. So this is why I feel so happy that I can tell you about this. <laughs> and, and also, you know, I... I recorded, we recorded the panel at the SCMS conference and uh, I made another video in Vimeo because at the panel I explained what I'm gonna, uh, what I'm going to do with, what I'm doing with this video essay. So I, I felt the urge to explain, but uh, I'm glad that you say that there is a good balance there. You know, I was more concerned, as I said before, to achieve another balance, the balance between playfulness and rigor. So I'm not sure how it would be received among, among film historians um, with whom I have already found funny difficult to share my, my work, my feminist interpretation, as I said before. Um, so I, I don't know. I really don't know. And I don't know if I can maintain this uh, balance um, if I want to make other video essay. Um, because, you know, I would like to, to continue uh, doing this uh, with other filmmakers. Uh, but I'm not sure that I will be there in, you know, my presence, my physical presence, my body, my face, my tears. Uh, it can become, you know, maybe too much. So this could be like a trailer and then make other videos um, with, with different balances. But I still don't know. <laughs> One of the things I appreciate about the video is it's the the various segments that you have, like, you begin with grounding the video in the scholarship that exists out there of videographic criticism. And then you get to the archive in the void you seek to fill in part two. And then in then you recreate um, Flor de España in, uh, by the end of the essay. Why was it important for you to structure the video in this way? And in particular to ground the work in videographic criticism at the beginning um because that's not something i think a lot of times that is implied in 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 video essay work but i i appreciate the way that you made it explicit at the beginning so could you it's kind of a two-part question but could you walk us through that thank you this is an excellent observation because i really um i did it when it was finished and then i thought something is missing here and uh, and i contacted cormac um, because I remember his talk um, at this conference, Exploring the Modes, that he was talking about the archives of imagination. And so he very kindly shared his text, uh, unpublished text still uh, with me. And it was perfect. And, and then he was, he was quoting Jason um, about, you know, a quote uh, in which he compares uh, soft, uh, the software, the premiere with an archive uh, of sound and images. So I thought this is perfect. It's really what I want to convey. Um, and so 
yes, so I start with uh, two quotes, Jason and, and Cormac. And, uh, and I think that, again, here, they make reference to the, to the body as a production tool, because our body stores images and we connect our memories to media through our imagination. So I think this was really a summary of what I intended to convey. Uh, and then I continue asking myself uh, if the video essay can bring back a film that is lost, but exists only in my imagination. And, and which is more than imagination because it's more than imagination. It's what uh, Marianne Hirsch in a completely different context calls post-memory. Hirsch talks about the Holocaust and according to Hirsch, post-memory is that feeling, uh, that the relationship that the generation after bears to the memories of those who came before. And therefore they remember experiences that were transmitting to them very deeply, but they do, did not experience firsthand. And so I think imagination and emotion and affection um, is what make me remember something I did not experience directly. So this is what I'm trying to do with this video essay. Uh, um, imagining, uh, feeling uh, something that I did not see, I did not watch, I did not experience. Uh, and then, you know, something else that I had, uh, and it was easy for my imagination uh, to, to be fed, <laughs> was, you know, the film synopsis. And this is what I do in this, I think it's this, the first, still in the first part of the video essay, I, I translate it into English and then I analyze, you know, segment by segment and I uh, describe, no, it's in the second part of the video essay, right? So I, and I uh, illustrate all the segments, uh, all the paragraphs of this uh, synopsis uh, by, um, you know, using um, footage from films of, uh, of that period. Uh, the, the films I chose span between 1905 and 1931. And this is like, you know, the, the archeological reconstruction I, I mentioned before, the pieces of the, the missing, missing pieces of the puzzle. And so uh, I use blood and sand, uh, city lights, uh, voyage in Espagne, uh, when the dancer, Alice Guy, you know, then motherhood, um, ah, and also Le Vampire uh, with uh, Musidora. And so that, 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 this is what I, what I do, or what I try to do. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea of post-memory, remembering something that you didn't experience directly, but nevertheless feeling. Um, and I, I love that part of the video essay when you show us your premiere and we can see the pieces and then we finally see the full picture um, at the end. So that was, that was really emotional for me. Um, but I, when you were talking about your childhood memory of the frescoes and that question of, should we leave the site as it is or should we reconstruct it? And I think what's brilliant about this video essay is that I feel like what you're doing is it's kind of simultaneous. 
as we're watching that reconstruction, we do still feel that void. So it's as if the site is still left as it is in a way, but that reconstruct, that reconstruction, we we're still able to experience something, a reconstruction of it. So yeah, I don't know, maybe that so it's, it's yeah. fake, but uh, without pretending that what is fake is real. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. I mean, yes, I like that. <laughs> so I feel less of a forger now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that insight, Emily. I I think that's spot on. And Barbara, you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to ask you a little bit more directly. And was creating this video cathartic for you in any way? Like, what were you feeling as you made it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, cathartic is the word. Um, I felt like as if I found... How do you say this in English? I, I, I felt like I had found the, the film. You know, this happens. You know, films are still, uh, lost film can still be found uh, in the basement of someone or hidden in a box, uh, cookie box somewhere. And uh, so I felt like, you know, I found it. <laughs> I, I, I had this, this feeling that, um, and, and also a feeling of, of revenge against uh, the uh, uh, film historians that attributed the film to to a man. <laughs> so I made no. It was really you know a, a dream come to come true. <laughs> in that vein, and this again, this is something that you've alluded to in talking about kind of your overall relationship with film historians and some academic or conference settings that are not explicitly. Uh, videographic in nature, um, but I would just be curious to know how this project has been received, and uh, you know that could just be sharing it with a couple of colleagues via email. Um, and I'm I'm thinking specifically by scholars who maybe this falls within their area of expertise and area of study, but maybe are not videographic critics. Like I, I would just be curious to know anecdotally what they've what they've made of it. Well, I'm actually very bad at sharing my my work. I make it and then I forget about it and move on to the next project. So I I I did it. You know, I had to to pre pre prepare another video essay to produce another video essay for a conference on Catalan studies, and and uh, I I presented it at UMass for the North American Catalan Society conference, and I was very nervous about presenting. Uh, I could have present, presented this video uh, because Elena Cortesina is from Valencia, so she would have fit uh, the scope of the conference, but I was too scared. And I, and I presented another video essay and I was scared enough that I had to do an introduction explaining what I was doing, videographic criticism, and it was so explanatory mode. Um, and people liked it. I think I, I show part of this uh, to Emily, right? People, people liked it. You know, maybe I should not be so scared. Um, or I should care less, but um, yeah, but this video, um, except for you two and the people that attended the panel at the SCMS, I don't think anybody else has, has seen it. Um, and uh, so I really appreciate your interest in this conversation with you because, you know, feedback is more, more than welcome. And, um, and yes, and, and the idea is to, to continue 
you know, uh, now I have a, a sabbatical leave. So I, I'm gonna, I, I really have time to dedicate to, to doing this. So, yeah, so I hope I can, I can do a, a, maybe a videographic book uh, on the reenactment of lost films by women pioneers. Um, I have, you know, I've studied many of them um, in Italy, in Spain, and in France, and uh, and I don't know if I want to, to do the book all on um, Spanish uh, women from pioneers whose work is is, is lost, or or not, or or maybe expand uh, to other countries. I, I still don't know, but um, I think it can be a cool project. That's so exciting. Um, along that same thread, this video is a work in progress. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about the goals for this project and maybe talk a little bit more about how you want to expand it? I want to make a, a videographic book on the reenactment of lost films by women pioneers. And uh, so this would be one chapter on Elena Cortesina. Uh, the goal of, of this uh, book uh, would be to give visibility to unknown production by, by film directors, also to situate this uh, kind of um, quote-unquote recovered cor corpus within the terrain of female cinema, maybe to study the specificity of female creativity, or maybe to contribute to the project of rewriting film history and include more women. And it's really needed in Spain. As I, as I said before, you know, things are changing luckily, but uh, people can talk about the history, the beginning of the history of Spanish cinema without including a single name of a woman, you know? So I think it's, you know, I feel that this would be a contribution um, to change that. And so I, I would like to, to discuss other Cases of expropriation of women's authorship. Early women film production is, is the victim of a systematic and endemic process of disappropriation. Uh, I would almost call it a dispossession, which has taken uh, many different forms and, and many different levels. Um, and I was, I was writing about this uh, recently. Um, I wanted to, you know, to really to to analyze the kind, this phenomenon. So, and I distinguish like three different levels of disappropriation. One is oblivion. Uh, oblivion, forgetting, is the most generalized and apparently the most innocent way of dispossessing. It's like, you know, the passage of time covers the name of women with dust, their works uh, disappear gradually from history. And there are no obvious culprits. The canon is not written by itself. So if the works of women filmmakers do not make it into the history of cinema, if their names are unknown or if they cease to exist, it is because, because the guardians of the canon, who are mostly men, have no interest in protecting the female presence from passing the time. And then there is a, a manifestation which is uh, at the opposite extreme of this phenomenon because it has uh, uh, obvious perpetrators. And I would call this, uh, this other kind of uh, dispossession usurpation, uh, which is uh, 
in modern terms, uh, a misappropriation of authorship. Um, for instance, in Spain, Maria Lejarraga, uh, she was a, a playwright, uh, or Anita Laws uh, with her screenplays, or uh, Margaret Keane with her paintings. Um, their husbands systematically took credit for what they created. And uh, Maria Lejarraga, after the death of her husband, tried without luck to get the copyright of her works. Anita Laws, when she wanted to divorce, discovered that her money was in the private accounts of John Emerson. Or uh, Margaret Keane sued her ex-husband, and she was, of the three, the only one who won. And these are just a few examples of this process of usurpation that have come to light, but undoubtedly, they must, be, they must not have been uh, the only ones. And then there is a third type of disappropriation and is the programmatic manipulation of some historians who correct the history of cinema to attribute works directed by women to men. And so Elena Cortesina is one. Um, and then uh, Roberto Palolella, an Italian, a very distinguished uh, historian who wrote, uh, Italian historian who wrote Storia del Cinema Muto in, in 1956-57, attacked um, in his writing uh, the films by Dora Film, uh, which was the producer company of Elvira Notari, and attributed the direction of Elvira Notari's films to her husband. And so there was this fallacy that he created that the director, Elvira Notari, was only in charge of the stories. And uh, uh, luckily, uh, Elvira Notari's son was interviewed and said, no, 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 it was my mother uh, directing. My, my dad was only carrying the camera. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, there is a lot to say and... Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm planning, you know, I, I would like to, to continue uh, working on this uh, topic and, and making video essays on, on this topic. On, I, I feel good. I feel I'm, I'm doing something useful. You know? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I, I can't wait. And I hope you, I feel that this, it's very exciting what you talk about as a videographic book and kind of, I know that Jason Mattel is very involved in that and kind of thinking through what this could look like. I don't know how I don't know how far along you are in in, in thinking it through, but have, do you see this as something where you would release installments publicly one at a time, and then they would all come together as a book project, or like how does that work? You know, I I'm planning like tomorrow to start working on a proposal and send it to Jason and see what he thinks. <laughs> so I will start <laughs> from there, yeah. and and I don't know what he's. Uh, you know, he he would think that am I allowed to to publish chapter by chapter as we do and uh, and share them in you know on our uh, social media or or shall I just keep them and then uh, publish all of them at once? I don't know, I don't know, and uh, I I really don't know. But you know, things uh, happen while you do them, so I'm now concerned about that. <laughs> something will happen about it for sure. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear and a great tease for everyone. So we'll, we'll be sure to keep everyone listening uh, updated. And speaking of Jason talking about videographic books and teasing things and the future, 
I think it's time to transition to kind of the third um, part of our podcast. The conference, the Theory and Practice of the Video Essay, International Conference on Videographic Criticism at UMass Amherst uh, this fall in September. Um, something I know Barbara has been in the works for quite a while. Um, I think you and I were talking like maybe in 2020 or years ago. I don't even know. You were like in the sometime and we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And now it's it's finally happening in person, which is really exciting. And Emily, I know, has been involved in that. So I'm sure you both will have so much to share with us in this part. But, you know, and this is the, this is the part of the show where we would typically talk about a video essay made by someone else. But because this conference is kind of in the future and it's bringing together so much work, it, it really fits kind of the purpose of this segment. So I'll, I'll just add that in. Um, but could you just generally walk us through the, the kind of the history of the lead up to this conference and why, what prompted you and, and, and Daniel and Emily and everyone at UMass to, to start it? Um, and then kind of in that add how you see it fitting into the existing work at UMass that we've already been talking about. Yes, the, you know, uh, the seeds of the conference uh, were planted at Middlebury College. So you see how crucial Middlebury College summer camp was for me? Yes, it was a promise I made to, to Jason Mittell. Um, I asked if uh, we could do a sequel of the video camp and, and he answered, why don't you do a, a conference? And yes, the conference uh, is going to be a wonderful way to continue conversations among video essays. That was the goal. And it also is going to be a great reunion of many people that belong um, to, to these four, actually five cohorts of video campers. I'm, I belong to the fourth one. And my colleague, Daniel Pope, uh, who's gonna, uh, who is the conference co-director, is going to Middlebury College in two weeks. So he belongs to the fifth cohort. And there are many more people from previous generation who are going to join us. So yes, so I really felt uh, the need to do something like this after the COVID lockdown. And I think actually the conference was supposed to be done before, but then uh, you know everything was suspended because of, of the lockdown. In a way, the lockdown became a wonderful opportunity uh, for all of us to exchange our works thanks to, to these many really excellent virtual initiatives we had, conferences, your podcast, Ariella Vissar's TV dictionary, uh, Evelyn Krautzer and Ariel's Once Upon a Time Part Two, two iteration of the uh, SCMS uh, um, conference with several panels on videographic criticism. And also, I don't know if you've seen today, there is a new initiative launched uh, by Evelyn on moving poems. So we have so many, we had so many opportunities to talk to each other and share our work, but we've done everything remotely. And I think now we need something more and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So Daniel, uh, Pope, Emily, and I formed a committee and other wonderful colleagues and graduate students joined us. And we basically spent this year working on, on the logistics. And that's you know uh, the major work for a conference. So we managed to secure an absolutely amazing venue on, on campus. No spoiler, but I'm so happy about this. And then... We had to do a lot of fundraising because, you know, we are a public institution, but everything you have to pay for. <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, and so we, we managed to secure uh, two grants from UMass, then the grad school is giving us funds, the International Program Office, many departments uh, on campus, and also um, departments of film and media studies uh, from the five colleges. You know that UMass is part of a consortium of five colleges. So also Smith College, Amherst College, and Mount Holyoke College are contributing. And I think the timing is perfect for UMass because we invited Colega Liberlene to teach a class for our visiting filmmakers of the 21st century, so she's going to be on campus in September. And also Ioannis Pinotto, as I said before, he's going to do a scholarly uh, residence at UMass, and he will teach two workshops for us. So we are taking advantage of their presence, and so they're going to be two um, keynote speakers. And then also Katie Grant and Jason Mittel have also graciously accepted our invitation so it's going to be really amazing having them as keynote speakers. And then uh, now we are in the process of defining the program. And, uh, and there are very, really fascinating things. It's very exciting. Uh, and I think you touch on, speaking personally, one of the things that I'm most excited about is this chance to meet so many people in person. You know, I feel like I've built genuine friendships online and the pandemic through all of these things. And it's like, oh, the, there's a real person out there. And I know that there are folks who are traveling from all over and this will truly be an international conference, as you know, probably better as you know. And but um, and um, actually, Emily had a had a question uh, that when we were talking about prep for this about kind of the other colleges and universities in, in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Barbara, you talk a little bit about how the other colleges are participating as sponsors. So I was wondering, do you see videographic criticism expanding out like in within the five college consortium as well? I think so, yes. Uh, we had one submission uh, by a student, I think from Mount Holyoke College, um and uh, but the response was amazing you know they were very interested this year i'm serving on the council of film studies of the five colleges and, uh, and so i had a chance to to tell them about uh, the conference and they are all excited and you know there is this exchange of students so i'm counting on the students um students from other colleges to come. Definitely, this is going to be an important piece um, to disseminate the field also uh, in the other college where there is a huge presence of film studies. Um, Emily worked for the Five College Film Festival, right? It was last year. Last year, And uh, yeah, so we have uh, the, the Five College uh, Film Festival and uh, and you presented the video essay for that, if I remember well, right, Emily? Yeah, we had the five college undergraduate film and media studies conference, and there was a panel for video essays. So that was really exciting, yeah. But yeah, definitely. Uh, and now actually I'm gonna submit an application for another grant because what I, I'm hoping to do is to lower the cost of the conference fees, especially for graduate students, um, because the hotel is expensive. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm working, I'm still working on, on fundraising. And the last piece is going to be that grant. And I hope uh, we're going to get it. But you know, these grants are important also because you, you make yourself uh, known to 
to the other uh, institutions. So, so that's really, um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting. Yes. And I also, I think that I can say for sure that the field has expanded. So just looking at the, the applications, uh, the submissions, it's, it's growing and, and it's becoming more rich and more nuanced and, and also more diverse. Remember that discussions that we had um, this December about gender of video essayists, the, the, the presence of the voiceover, the, it's always male voiceover, et cetera. And, and I'm seeing, you know, it looks like this conference is well gender balanced. And unfortunately, we did not ask participants to indicate their gender at the time of their submission. But I'm assuming just by their names, and I know that sometimes they, they, it's, they are wrong assumptions, but more or less I have the sense that it's, uh, there is equal representation, which is absolutely great. Also, we received many submissions from abroad. Uh, we received uh, abstracts from Sweden, from Spain, from the UK, the Czech Republic, Germany, Israel, uh, also from Latin America, uh, among other countries. And... Uh, and also something else that I really like is that half submissions are from faculty and the other half is by graduate students, one undergraduate students and some independent researchers. So it's about 40 presentations plus four keynotes. So now the challenge is to fit everything in two days um, because we don't want to to, to have parallel sessions, it would be great to share absolutely everything um, and not having the audience to, to decide where do I go, you know, and what I'm going to miss. So we are going to work on that next week, actually tomorrow. Emily, you're invited, more than invited. <laughs> it seems like tomorrow is a big day for you, Barbara. You have this meeting, you're starting the videographic book thing. It's always tomorrow. It's all yes. happening. That's, no, but that's very exciting. Um, I'm wondering, Barbara, if you give us a sense without, you know, spoiling anything or, 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 you know, sharing anything that folks wouldn't want to be shared, just the types of papers and panels that one might expect to see at this conference, which I should add, it, it's taking place from September 22nd to the 23rd. And, you know, it's still that while the CFP has closed, of course, it's attendance is still obviously possible and it give us a sense of what we might expect when we when we go okay when, when i'm, I'm trying not to do a spoiler here yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yes so in addition to video essay on hollywood cinema uh, which are really in a, mi a minority we receive proposal on chinese japanese galician uh, spanish uh, almodovar french austrian Irish, uh, Brazilian, Colombian, Palestinian film productions. So amazing. Then uh, we have video essay on film adaptations, on film genres, in particular on horror cinema. Then uh, I, I'm thinking about uh, your podcast, uh, recent podcast uh, with Ariella Vissari. Uh, he was saying how many, how few video essays on, on TV series. Well, there are video essays on TV series on theatrical exhibition and television broadcast, on music video, on poetry and folklore inspired text and music, on paintings, on poems, on TV commercials, on YouTube videos, uh, and on the short scholarly video, and also on 
Understanding and Podcasting the Labor and Practices of Video Essaying. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> But that's a paper, right? Are you doing a paper on that, uh, Will, right? That's a question for future Will. He yes. hasn't decided yet. <laughs> But yeah. I think there will definitely be... I My ambition is to maybe try and create some sort of audio collage. Yes, this is what I thought. Yeah. goes with and- it. So that's the ambition, but I do think a, a, a portion of it will be uh, a paper, but I think we'll really see, I kind of have to go through this archive of my own stuff to yes. figure out what, yeah. what exactly is in there. <laughs> yes. No, I think it's super exciting. Did you see? So it's amazing variety and diversity. And then topics, we will certainly put together one or two panels on gender because we received video essays uh, on proposals on female sexuality, women's paranoia, uh, gender-based violence, feminist non-linear narrative strategies of, of um, you know, film strategies to create feminist uh, narrative, then Hollywood's gender inequities. Then uh, we are going to have a panel on uh, race, um, question of structural racism, immigration, video essay on the landscape, Um, addressing issues such as eco-criticism. I was, uh, just today, um, Katie Grant posted one of her entry, right, on eco-criticism and video and videographic criticism. And we have at least three video essays on this topic, um, environmental concerns, the landscape as a spectator, um, tropes within desert epic films and how they relate to Orientalism. Then, of course, affect videographic criticism criticism as an act of remembering and sharing dreams. Emily, you're presenting that, right? <laughs> and then many video essay on sound. I think we can have at least two panels on sound, um, on music video space, uh, on uh, the use of sound in Steve McQueen's uh, Lover's Rock, uh, or an exploration of footsteps in Hitchcock, or on the soundtrack, uh, explore with, uh, without a temporal engagement with a film text. And then another range of topics span from editing technique, techniques such as the star wipe, or on the rack effect, or on the cyclorama. I didn't know what it was. It's a, I had to check it out. So it's a that curved, cornerless background using advertising, music, video, and cinema, uh, general white, or on the Spanish genre of the crossover, or even on epistolar video. So really amazing. And also there is a, a panel um, on, uh, which is meta-videographic refre- reflections uh, entitled Organizing Chaos, Videographic Works in Process. So as you see, <laughs> pretty amazing. <laughs> it is, it, wow, what a lineup. I'm like, I, this is going to be like Christmas in September. I can't, I can't wait. And that, that last panel you mentioned, I've heard a little bit about through the grapevine and I'll, I'm really looking forward to that one. I'm curious and Emily, I'd be, feel free to jump in here because I'd just be curious to know what it's been like for you to kind of be involved in this whole process. But just quickly, Barbara, what is the breakdown between video essays on various topics and then papers and videos on videographic criticism. And when you were uh, going about this conference, was the goal to, because I mean, both ultimately at the end of the day, contribute 
to the field in various ways, but just in kind of two different approaches. So was was there a goal to kind of have a mix? Was that what you wanted? Is there a mix? Could you just talk about that breakdown a little bit? We, we, we put together, you know, the submission was divided in three different sections. You could submit a, a video in progress video or a paper, paper proposal or a panel proposal. And uh, uh, it's almost all video essays. Um, there are very, very few paper proposals and only one pre-constituted uh, panel. So all the rest is, uh, is video essays, which is good. You know, it's uh, actually easier because we're gonna, you know, th- that's not gonna be a way to divide people. Now, now, now the, the challenge is to fit everything in just two days. So I think we're probably not gonna sleep. It's gonna go, go on all day and night. <laughs> yeah, I think we have a lot of proposals that kind of going up against like the boundary of what we, what we might think is a video essay. And I think we had this discussion earlier on as a committee, um, you know, what do we do about works that might be a little like more of a hybrid sort of work not exactly a video essay, but maybe more of like a visual art piece or something like that. And I think we ultimately decided to kind of welcome that. Um, And so I think, yeah, so I think it's really interesting. It's gonna be really cool to see all the innovative, all all the innovation that's happening in the field or maybe um, inspiration that people can take from these works. And what do you, as a committee, so I'll, I'll address this to, to, to both of you. What have you talked about in terms of the impact you hope the conference will have? I know that's like a loaded work word and it doesn't necessarily need to have this like, uh, that feels like very like a capitalist or something way of, of, of phrasing it. Like I don't mean it in that way, but I think I would imagine that you must have talked about it and just the act of doing it will have an impact, I, I know. But I'd be curious, um, yeah, what is the hope for the kind of the the afterlife of it and, and yeah, the effect of it? And, and that this can be, it doesn't need to even be concrete, but if even just in an abstract general way, how have you thought about it? I think I can kind of speak on the student perspective because one of the things that's really cool about this conference is we actually have student clubs involved as well. So we have the film production club being involved. We have film discussion club involved um and so some of those students have engaged in videographic criticism but a lot of them haven't so i think it'll be a really great way to expose current students to the form and also expose them to the great community because i think one of the best things about videographic criticism is everyone is so welcoming and it's so community-based and to have that to be able to host that sort of vibe at UMass is going to be really, really awesome. Yeah, and I'm so happy about it. It's it's great that you're mentioning this, Emily. I'm so grateful to the uh, clubs, two clubs that are collaborating uh, with a lot of paperwork uh, in, because we are re- uh, securing a space that only, only students can get. It's in the new students' union and... Uh, and I'm really counting on you know, the participation of, of students uh, and part- really active participation. Um, uh, there is, I don't want to spoil anything, but Johannes is doing something live 
and uh, for the students so that's gonna be really um, something I think that's gonna impact them I would say that you know I have modest goals in mind um, one I hope that the conference will contribute to the visibility and to the consolidation of this field among, among students and faculty in film studies and beyond LUMAS. And then uh, I hope it will strengthen our community. I'm really looking forward to get to know in person some of these people, some people that I, I feel like they're good friends, friends. And then I said, I never, I really never met them in person. <laughs> After two or three years, I we've gained we've been you know collaborating in projects together and then and really i hope we are gonna have fun <laughs> these are my three goals <laughs> i can't wait um i will say just in my own experience i was invited to speak up at umass in december and you all showed me a great time to stay in the beautiful hotel on campus and some lovely food and all the rest so i can't wait it's also a beautiful time to be in Western Massachusetts um, in September. So it's going to be fantastic. Um, I will also use this as an opportunity to plug, we, and we've mentioned to it in this conversation, the Interrogating the Modes of Videographic Criticism Symposium, um, which you and I, Barbara, both were a part of in February. And student, that was an online symposium, but students were well integrated into that event as well. Um, and the students of the organizers at Aarhus University have helped put together a report of that symposium that was published in the most recent edition of Notes on Videographic Criticism, or as we're recording this, the most recent edition, um, but is also available at thevideoessay.com. If you go to the blog section, I've uploaded the whole report there, and there's a PDF you can download. So again, kind of the impact of another event, um, just just wanted to give that a shout out here. Um, and so Barbara and Emily, what if someone's listening to this podcast and they really want to attend this event or be involved in some way, kind of what is the rough timeline going for? I know that you had talked about funding and things like that. And again, that was another benefit to kind of, an, uh, you know, a silver lining to the pandemic thing is that the cost factor was so, you know, you just had to hop on a Zoom and a lot of things were free, but uh, could you just walk through kind of what folks should expect timeline wise and and also I'll share updates on through my channels as well. But just for now, what does the kind of landscape look like? Well, I think we are going to have uh, a draft of the program very soon. So everybody will see more or less um, when they're going to present. Um, and then we will work with conference services because they will manage uh, all the, you know, the, the, the part of the website with the, uh, registration. I feel embarrassed by the the cost of the hotel. I really recommend you know people to to if they can uh, stay at this hotel because it's uh, it's on campus, the same building where we're gonna have uh, the first dinner and the third dinner. So it's really it's really convenient and the rooms are pretty pretty large, so you can really share them. Um, I will actually prepare. A doc, um, a Google Doc, a shareable do the Google Doc. So if people want to to connect with other people and share uh, transportation, share a room, uh, they would find a way to contact other people on this Google Doc. It's fantastic. We'll look forward to hearing all the updates. Um, 
I'll of course uh, share them as well. Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us today. I, I really appreciate it. And also thank you for everything that you do for me, for the community, <laughs> for your students and everything. It's it's very much appreciated. Thank you, so Will. thank you. you. You make me cry. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I really had fun. And, you know, I, I really appreciate sharing what I'm doing with, with other people and having your attention for two hours. What a pleasure. <laughs> I feel like we could have yeah. gone for two or three more. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Thanks.